National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the National Council of Catholic Men, presents The Holy Agony. Episode 6 Remember that you are dust for the feast of all souls. Chapter 20 Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It was not as simple as that spoon in a chilled glass that tasted like death. Whatever you had, you have to give it back. Without tenderness and without the flowers you had laid carefully, trembling at the woman clothed with the sun and the moon bare under her feet, her crown made of the stars, all the stars dangled in the sky. It was not as simple as her appearing, but that every single instance of love now seemed as impossible as the sun, the moon, the stars, no longer appearing to cause one thing or another, as love and death had always seemed to be. Was it September, or was it August, when 
A long row of visitors arched their brow to ask questions. It was not as simple as one funeral for all the dead was not too much. Not the time to bow your head. It was no longer impossible anymore to die then than now. In prayer for the stars, the moon, the sun, for her, for the gone, who all live forever now. This a night, this a night, every night and all, fire and fleet and candlelight, and Christ receive thy soul. When thou from hence away art past, every night and all, to Winnie Muir thou comest at last, and Christ receive thy soul. If ever thou gavest hosen and shoon, every night and all, Sit thee down and put them on, and Christ receive thy soul. If hosen and shoon none e'er gave snain, every night and all, the wind south prick thee to the bare vein, and Christ receive thy soul. My grandpa was born in 1929 in Franklin County, Indiana, to Martin and Fanny, and he had one older brother named Orville. This was the Great Depression, and one thing he told me he learned about life was the need for patience. Wanting things, even the most simple of things, required time and work, and even then there were no guarantees. In 1950, he was drafted into Korea, honorably discharged in 1952 and it was there that he became a diesel mechanic. My father was born in 53, and in 1959, my grandpa, who we all called Gampy, discovered that my grandmother had cheated on him while he was in Korea. 
They couldn't get past it, so they divorced. The next 20 years of his life were spent working, boozing, and chasing women. By his own admission, he wasn't the best father. In 1977, my oldest sister was born, so he decides he's going to quit drinking and smoking cold turkey, and he does both on the same day. She died six months after her birth from SIDS, but instead of running back to the bottle, he starts going back to church. In 1994, my mom and dad separate, which would later lead to their divorce. My mom moved us back to their hometown, and this is when I really started to get to know him. In the summers, I would spend time with him at his work, which was a farm equipment shop. This was illegal, of course, because I was a minor, but no one cared, and the payoff for me was getting to learn about diesel repair and see patience and practice. He was a good teacher with few words. There was pressure to produce, but it never seemed to bother him much. Not every problem he came across had an easy fix. Troubleshooting is a patient game, and he played it well, and he tried to teach me to play it well. He retired in 1999. The last decade of his life was spent in ill health, but even then it's not what any objective observer would consider a waste. He developed a new interest in music, new genres, and artists that he had no interest in before had suddenly blossomed into an interest. He read books, he watched films, he had visits with us. He was like a kid rediscovering things for the first time. He died in a hospital in central Indiana. My dad called me up and told me that it was getting close, but not to drive up to see him because the hospital had a guest policy that only allowed one person at a time. Moreover, it was April of 2020 and our governor had set up restrictions on interstate travel, as did my employer. I'm comforted somewhat by a few things my dad told me as my grandpa was dying. He told me that Gampy had said something to the effect of, Oh mama, I missed you so much. Eggheads and reductive materialists might excuse this as the firing of random synapses or some neurochemical process but it's my belief that he was departing this world into the next and he was being greeted by his mother. Some days I'm angry about this, other days I'm not. I did what I thought was right, but I was wrong about what I thought was right. If I could do it again, I would have traveled up to say goodbye to him, but you can't go backwards in life and what's done is done. This is yet another lesson to anyone with ears to hear and eyes to see that the governing and ruling bodies in our country are wholly bankrupt. Yes, COVID is a dangerous disease, and practical and moral measures ought to be taken to control it. But it is not moral to isolate people from their friends and family members. There's nothing even remotely moral about abandoning the elderly, especially those who are close to death, to loneliness and dejection. So as not to leave this on a sour note, I want to tell all those listening that things change every day. Every day in this country, more and more regular people are becoming disillusioned with our governing and ruling structures, and sooner or later, something is going to give. Eventually, we had to come to the subject of death and judgment.
loved us so much that many Christmases later, when my cousin enjoyed his first holiday out of prison, with a shaved head and swastikas tattooed on his skin, my grandfather didn't seem to care. He welcomed him into his home. It was something I couldn't reconcile at the time, but it's something I admire my grandfather so much for now. He wasn't perfect. He drank, he gambled. Uh, he was occasionally, let's say, given to lapses of faithfulness with my grandmother. But for all his secret selfishness, all I can remember when I think of him is this selfless man, the man who was willing to risk a visit from the cops just so a classroom worth of grandchildren could have a Walkman. The man who let a racist skinhead sit in his living room and see things are better on the outside in the world where you don't have to mutilate your flesh or twist your mind to belong. He died this past April. I, none of us could see him because of hospice's COVID policy. We couldn't comfort my grandmother, who attended the funeral remotely from her hospital bed on an iPad. None of us had anything but the funeral and his dead body, both withered and wretched. Nothing felt consecrated. It felt like something I couldn't quite articulate until Jessica gave me a piece of writing from this old Benedictine newspaper out of Oklahoma. The writing spoke so clearly to how I received that funeral that I had to tell her and well shit now I'm here recording this last second on her request the summation of the writing amounted to a statement regarding the fact and I mean fact that Protestant funerals are a matter of strict sentiment even when concerning the soul and I'm not at least not at the time of this recording, a Catholic. So I've been to many of these sentimental funerals, and my grandfather's was the worst. This Gen X minister giving my grandfather the most secondhand eulogy you can imagine. Rather than speaking of his soul, he pitched a Netflix series. Where was my grandfather when Emmett Till was murdered? Sentiment. What did he think when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat? Sentiment. What was he feeling when Malcolm and Martin were murdered? Sentiment. When we elected the first black president? Sentiment. His life was rendered as empirical as his cold flesh. No soul to be spoken of, let alone works or faith. No life, just data. Just a speculative proximity to a selection of historical yarns that serve the powers and principalities of this earth. Sentiment. Sinister. The crowd was never the same. There was no congregation, no body, because a funeral home isn't a church. It plays at being one like anything this world has to offer does, but it is just a clearinghouse for corpses. A threshing floor for sentiment to be separated from anything durable so it can be ground into flour and baked into a showbread to be left on an altar for what else but sentiment. Sick, sideways, senseless, and sinister. 
I was the first one at the burial site. And I just sat in my car and ate toasted seaweed while I listened to the Perfume Nationalist Sins episode to distract myself from an anger that felt too righteous to brush off, too justified to eliminate with mere spiritual or like ecumenical self-abasement. My family showed up and I distracted myself with them. And uh, then, then I got to cry a little of the the only tears that I really had of like sadness or sorrow that whole day um, when my grandfather's biological family was there and I tried and honestly failed at telling him telling them that uh, he was my real grandfather and that he always would be. But when the sorrow passed, the anger came back. And it came with its own tears, and I could not meet my family for lunch. I drove home, gritting my teeth, trying to wring enough composure from my clenched molars to make it to my driveway. And as soon as I got home, I fucking screamed. The last vestiges of what I clung to, of the left, ran through my fingers like the sentiment they were. He was a soul. A soul. Lesson from the first letter of St. Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians. Tell you a mister, we shall all indeed rise, but we shall not all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall rise incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when this mortal body puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, 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 death, where is your victor? Oh, 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 death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? How the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our thanks be to God. departed to the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. <laughs>
last year was I don't even know what to say about it what an absolute nightmare at this you know nursing home in East Texas and she was doing okay so though she was she doing was great like almost 90 or how, was she over 90 was she 93 I don't she remember. was over 90 yeah I though she, she was, was over 90 she was doing really well until they put her into solitary confinement to yeah. protect her from death yeah they suddenly just uh, kept all old people in prison and the restrictions about who could go in and at what time she was dying and our father had a difficult time <laughs> going in like it's if all for no reason I mean everyone running that home was like just like people who knew nothing in like their 30s just these weird arbitrary form cruel formalities was it even on the table for you guys to visit um no. i did i went i went in uh august and um i saw her one last time and in person or through a window in person that's good and uh she she had basically stopped eating for like the last couple months and uh, wasted away. And for the last few weeks, she was barely there and didn't say anything, but she did uh, hold my name and she did recognize me and say my name. It's just so crazy to me someone would be in their 90s and you, you protect them by making sure it's as miserable as possible. Protect them from what? Exactly. I, what I never, like what? basically trying to avoid liability is all I can see but like yeah. it was all under the guise of protection what were they protecting and, them from and w when you're 90 it's coming very soon no matter what yeah and so you force them into solitary confinement and and what do they do when they're in solitary confinement watch TV and old people believe TV can you imagine can you imagine being oh, forced yeah. into solitary yeah. and watching TV and believing also, yeah alone in there oh our other grandmother who died almost 20 years ago, I remember when she had Alzheimer's and the TV was on and there was a commercial with like an alligator on it and she started screaming because it, it, they just, all reality is one thing and TV is one thing to them and they can't remember anything. But the it, it's an absolute scandal what went on and uh, that really shows you how hateful our culture is towards family and towards the elderly to an un unprecedented level just it, it really stuck me what happened with you guys because my grandmother came down with dementia 
like the Thanksgiving before COVID. And we basically all got together and we decided let's let's find her a retirement community that's close to one of us. And because she, she owned a house and she was by herself, she was like 20 minutes away from my aunt, but it was getting to the point where we were worried about her safety. You know, she left the stove on or something like that. And so we came very, very close to putting her into a home in January. And we, we never found anything we felt good about. And so what we ended up doing was we all got together and whoever, you know, to the degree we were able, we chipped in to build an addition to my dad's house so she could move in and live basically in a little apartment that walked right into his kitchen. And the, like two weeks after we made that decision, every nursing home in Connecticut where she would have gone was locked down, no visitors for a year. And so she would have been sitting in a nursing home in a state that she hadn't lived in for 30 years since her husband died, alone, not able to talk to anybody, watching CNN for a year if she made it that long. She wouldn't be here anymore. She's fine now. She's forgetful. You know, she needs a walker to get around, but she's she's with her son, her great-grandkids come by. I can, when I'm on my way home from work, I can just stop in and say hi. And there's almost no chance she'd be here if we'd done that. Yeah. Like, I, I reiterate, I say once again, she was doing fine for a 90-year-old. She was doing good. She actually got to the point where she was kind of happy about where she was living, you know? And, like, one of her daughters lived in the same town and would see her every day but like she was doing well she was happy as far as you can be when you're at the the end like that but then as soon as uh they decided you know that they needed to save her from death it was like rapid decline yeah they killed her they they absolutely killed her One thing that the Catholic priest gets to do is stand at the foot of everyone's good Friday. There will come a day for each of us where our life will come to an end. There's only two ways to die, fast or slow. You go suddenly with a heart attack, a car accident, an overdose. Or you go slow, chronic illness, old age, cancer, dementia, the list goes on. But at the end of the day, you either die fast or you die slow. Doesn't matter if you die young or old. But when that time comes, especially as a Catholic, a person of faith, it really boils down to you and God, creature and creator, known from our conception. When the soul is created by God and mother is very weak, and then of course for that soul to leave the body at the time of death. As Christ said on the cross, it is your hand, Father, I commend my spirit. So the priest has the privilege in the person of Christ, as the Latin would say, in the son of Christi, to be as a person in the Especially that I slept. Did I have it? Might not be a priest of land. Of course I did. So that's also why we should keep our lamps trained and burning, and be one of the prudent and wise virgins ready for our master's return at any time that he should not, by daily giving ourselves to his mercy, his grace, and his will. But indeed, if our time is coming, we know it. We'll be given that grace, we long suffer, and calling for the priest, and having the priest come to your bedside, 
but it's not the priest. Jesus, there's really only one priest, even though there might be half a million ordained Catholic priests in the world. But it's Christ. Now, of course, last year, in spring of 2020, little did I know that I would be involved in something outbreak of the so many stories and how many ways that God's grace unfolded and how that came to be and how we were prepared and led by the Spirit to be there. It could take hours to tell. But I can share one very point, very nice I was going to do my Saturday night hospital calls at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and I received a phone call from one of my fellow friars, Father Ed Gordon, who was a military chaplain and little did we know had been serving for several weeks on the mercy ship of the Jacob Javits on the west side of the Patton as a chapel. Doctors and nurses to be exhausted to the hospital. Well, there was a need for Catholic priests with one dying individual out at Elmhurst, Queens, that was the epicenter of the epicenter of the coronavirus and the worst of the outbreak at the beginning. They couldn't get a hold of the local priest for some reason that was not known to me. And he was already redeployed on the ship at the left Manhattan the day before May 1st, so he could go down to Norfolk, Virginia. So I said, sure, of course I'll go, into battle. So I arrived and I was greeted by an army nurse who brought me to the hospital. People go and come off their anesthesia after procedures and surgery. Yet due to the needs in our minds and our intellects and our wills, that even if we can't speak, that if we could, most of us, and God willing, all of them were disposed to ask for his mercy. And the church and her generosity and Christ and his wisdom were more than happy to provide. It was Christ who desired to be there. It was Christ who got the phone. It was Christ who wanted to walk the floors of the pandemic to be with his sick the best he could. Of course, at the beginning, we couldn't go into some of the rooms. We didn't have enough personal protective gear. We didn't know enough about transmission of the virus. So within a few weeks, thanks to God, we were able to go and give that sacramental care to hold. The care of mercy to prepare them, the great glory, as they lay at their own Calvary. Whether their purgatory was now or later, and God will enjoy their lives. The month of November and the holy souls of those who've gone before us, all things in the communion thereof. The prayer the priest prays at the final commendation. After the sacraments have given, what of the things have been said, if the person is conscious and can still be taking food and drink, they would have had communion, might add some food for the journey. The priest leads I commend you, my dear brother, to Almighty God, and entrust you to your creator. May you return to him who formed you from the dust of the earth. May Holy Mary, the angels, and the saints, and Timothy, should go forth from this life. May Christ, who was crucified for you, bring you freedom and peace. May Christ, who died for you, admit you into his garden of paradise. May Christ, the true shepherd, acknowledge you as one of his flock, and he forgive all your sins and set you among those who have chased you. May you see your redeemer face to face, and you can live your God.
Sequentia Sancti Evangelii Secundum Ioanum. Gloria Tibe Domine. My friend Rai died during lockdown. She was 38. 
She died from despair, isolation, and poverty via opiates, which she'd been off for nearly a decade. The first time I talked to Rye on the phone was when my son was a toddler. My husband was in mental health crisis, a crisis that would go on one way or another for three years, and I was our family's sole financial provider running a child care center out of our rental home's garage. I spent day after day in pouring rain with a group of children kitted out in wool and rain gear in a colorless forest in the great northwest, telling fairy tales, singing, and being relentlessly positive. It was the darkest winter of my life. I met Rye in a social justice parenting group on Facebook. She and I kept getting in trouble for being quote-unquote class reductionist. One weekend evening, we both got called out for agreeing in a comment thread that if the Democratic Party nominated Hillary Clinton, Trump could actually win. We were scolded and told we were racist. Rye messaged me and suggested we video chat. I took my phone, the first smartphone I ever had, a supermarket model with a grainy camera, out to the overhang by our front door, where I would be sheltered from the relentless rain, which continued to fall, and have a little privacy to chat. As I remember it, we discovered within moments that our shared pantsuit nation skepticism was the smallest thing we had in common. Rye and I had strangely parallel lives. Both of us got ritzy scholarships to fancy colleges and then failed to capitalize on our excellent liberal arts education afterwards, ending up as overly qualified, low-wage workers working with kids. Both of us married older men with kids from previous relationships and mental health shit. Both of us were growing increasingly uncomfortable with the quote-unquote social justice discursive community, but didn't quite know where to go as longtime leftists and feminists. And both of us were living exhausting lives of long hours of work and wondering, in our mid-thirties, how the hell this was what life was. I remember laughing that night and many other nights like it until tears poured down my cheeks, Rye laughing back at me in the grainy window of my smartphone. But one particularly vivid memory in the height of my husband's mental health crisis is when I called Rye crying tears of total hopelessness. She listened to me and didn't say a single falsely optimistic thing. We both smoked a cigarette, holding our phones on the porches of shitty rental houses thousands of miles apart. She put her cigarette down across her mug and twisted her long curly hair away from her face and then took another drag and said, you know what we are? We're like those people who go to ashrams and clean toilets and shit to get enlightenment. You know what I'm talking about? You and me, we're in the ashrams of suburbia. It's upper upper level zen ego death work and we've leveled way the fuck up, you know? We're ascendant. I'll never forget Rai's face in my phone screen when she said that. It made me laugh, and still does, and it's also as good a way as any to describe our particular path of step-parenthood, spousal mental health, hard work, and poverty. Rai was smarter than me, funnier than me, more beautiful than me, and had worse luck than me in all kinds of ways, walked a harder path than me with a thousandfold more grace. One of the greatest sorrows of her life was that she was never able to have a child of her own, but she very rarely spoke about it. 
Instead, she spoke about her stepkids, always in as positive and warm a way as possible, about learning ever more about fiber arts, about the mechanics of running, a passion of hers, and about birds, and food preparation in ancient cultures, and all the other thousand parts of the world that Rye delighted in learning about. She followed my son's development with more interest and with a completely genuine warmth than I can express, a generosity of spirit that moved and moves me more than I can say. When the pandemic restrictions hit, Rye was already living in an intersection of poverty, housing instability, family conflict, debt, and illness that was intolerable. The lockdowns, the isolation, and the loss of income pushed her situation to an unbearable point. I didn't know she died until weeks afterwards. That's how it can be to be an internet friend. Rai knew more about me, my inner life, my family life, my spirit, than any friend I had, and I knew a lot about her too, but I was also just someone she talked to online not someone her partner or her estranged father or anyone else who arranged her Zoom funeral would have known to contact. At some point, one of those people deleted her Facebook Messenger account, taking with it thousands of exchanges between us. I miss Rye every day. The world should be furious that she was taken from us all so early. I'm furious about it, and I don't know one single fucking thing to do about it. I just sit outside the porch of a different rental house some evenings with my phone dark in my hand and look at the stars. I love you, Rye. Thank you for everything. Belong in the world, the world, the world, the world, the world. I think I like to this Oh, <laughs> 
the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Trespasses 
briefly went to college in New York City, and I became friends with a kid named Anton Frohlov. He killed himself by jumping from the roof of our school building in Manhattan, 20 stories. Witnesses said that the sound of his body hitting the concrete was like a bomb going off. I was the last person he ever spoke to. I wasn't invited to the funeral because it was Russian Orthodox. No one spoke English, and outsiders weren't really welcome. But I went to the dinner afterwards, held in his honor. It was in Brighton Beach. There was so much vodka. His aunt leaned in close and explained to me that during the funeral, the priest admonished everyone and said that his death was our fault. We were all responsible. That night during the long train ride back to bed I couldn't stop thinking about sweet Anton's mangled body and his last moments of consciousness before he met the ground. He had confided in me his struggles with depression and insomnia, and I had given him some line of stoic bullshit about embracing suffering, something which I knew nothing about. But that was over 15 years ago, and I know more about suffering now. I don't think that my advice to him was wrong, but it was naive and inarticulate, lacking in conviction. What I know about suffering now is that you cannot avoid it. You can't really make it smaller, can't make it go away. It's yours, and it will follow you, even beyond the grave. Many of the great saints begged God for temporal suffering. They wanted to be purified of their sins while they were still alive so that they could skip purgatory after death and fly directly into the light of the beatific vision. Suffering is the medicine for the malady of sin. People have their own individual suffering to bear, but so do civilizations. And if they want to survive, they must bear that suffering with courage and humility. When a person is driven by desperation to escape their own suffering, what results is self-destruction, suicide. The same is true of civilizations. It's quite possible that we all deserve to die in the plague. God, in his wisdom and mercy, will spare most of us that fate. But one thing is clear. The remedy for disorder will be pain. And pain is coming for us all, one way or another.
as though for a time I didn't exist. Last time I saw my Uncle Don, I pretended not to see him on the street and walked right by. Second to last time I saw him a week earlier, he was on the way to an outpatient drug program. He was surprised to see me and seemed embarrassed. He assured me he was doing better and the program worked if he worked it, but it sounded like a platitude. He was probably surprised to see me in the city because I was only 18. It had been years since we had been close enough for him to know anything about my personal life committed suicide the next day. Don was the youngest of my mom's brothers. He lived in the same building when I was little, as did all the French-Canadian side of my family. He was the only uncle who didn't work in the family business, my grandfather's VHS rental and television repair shop attached to our childhood home. Don's only real interest was rock and roll. My grandfather would hire his bandmates to work in the store, and Don was like a Kramer-esque character, constantly drifting in and out of our daily lives. It was funny and charming until the ammo band fizzled out, and his focus shifted to getting high. He began using daily, stole my grandma's car, and went to jail for stripping copper pipes out of buildings. He became sad. He was the closest thing he could be to a black sheep in a family full of poor Quebecois trash. We started only seeing him on holidays, if at all. I started assuming he was in jail more often than not. When I hit my teenage years and developed similar tunnel vision towards music, people started comparing me to Don in a way that I didn't care for. It wasn't a small part of why I leaned into straight-edge culture, hoping I would be different somehow. It didn't stop my grandfather from talking about me in the same politely disappointed tone. I had left home years before finishing high school and was living in a small city near my hometown when I got the call. My mom was too upset to talk so my dad called. I don't remember much about it other than the awkward, kind of desperate insinuation that he had been murdered. It didn't make a lot of sense. He sat in a garage with a hose running from the exhaust into his car. No one else was home or had seen him that day. He had plenty of reason to do it. I felt sick and I don't think I had the guts to mention having seen him the day before. My parents picked me up a few days later and we took the five-hour ride north to Berlin, the old paper mill border town where my, where my mom's family first settled in the U.S. It had been years since we made the drive together. Childhood vacation rides and happier times when I'd been a different person, a normal kid. I'd been so angry at my parents for so long I felt paralyzed by sudden violent sadness, wanted to comfort my mom and didn't know how. It was a long drive and no one said anything. Berlin was a paper mill town that had outlived the paper industry in America. Ratty mid-century homes dotted a steep hillside stripped of trees, the Androscoggin River running through it, brown and foamy and rank from wood pulp, and the new hydro plant that was keeping the local economy on life support. The funeral mass was at St. Anne's, the old family church where my uncle Rainey was a deacon. It was impossibly small and claustrophobic in my memories. 
I say impossible because I've visited St. Anne's since and it's an absolutely massive sprawling church, practically a cathedral. It was built during a boom of immigration from Quebec and now seems almost comical, situated amongst the crumbling shacks of Berlin. But in my memories it was tiny, entire church barely enough for the altar and the priest and my family crammed into the front pew, the priest practically on top of us as he delivered the homily. The homily the first time I thought about death or judgment or heaven or hell with any seriousness since I'd been a child. To my 18-year-old libtard mind, it was a hellfire and brimstones and threats of damnation. Though in hindsight, it seems more likely he'd gently touched on the possibility of hell and I overreacted. The only thing I remember with any clarity is my grandmother crying while I seethed. I just wanted to stop. I wanted to go back to not believing in hell or thinking about my uncle's soul or what it said about me. We buried him a mile up the hill in Mount Calvary Cemetery. The wind was harsh that day and I looked down at Berlin to keep my mind off the cold. The house is like little stumps sticking out of the hillside. We went to a reception at one of those banquet halls that time forgot. Wood paneling and red stained glass and dried chicken cutlets in a thick lemony paste. For the first time in years I decided not to make things worse by demanding a vegetarian meal. While I was thinking about all of this, I decided to dig up some of Don's old music. There was one song that has always been stuck in my head from childhood I wanted to find. The chorus went, I don't know who you are, but I hope you're there. The kind of things that seems profound when you're young and writing rock songs. I managed to dig up a live version of the song from 1986. It opened with an awkward tribute to the Challenger shuttle crew. It must have been in the news that day. I want to dedicate this to that shuttle accident there, my uncle slurred. I really want to say that those people are definitely going to heaven. Well, we hope they're there. It may as well have been his homily at St. Anne's 13 years later. I know the odds aren't good, but I hope he beat them somehow. Don, I hope you're there. shuttle accident there. It's hard to find something to fit into that, but it's, uh, we really want to say that these people are going to definitely be going to heaven, and we hope they're there. That's right. We know that we all hope you're there.
trust our brothers and sisters. In this life you embrace them with your tender love. Deliver them now from every evil and bid them enter eternal rest. The old order has passed away. Welcome them into paradise, where there will be no sorrow, no weeping nor pain, but fullness of peace and joy with your Son, the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen.